Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition Podcast series, where we're now covering nuclear power with a focus on small modular and advanced reactors. I'm excited to be joined today by Chris Levesque, who is CEO of TerraPower. TerraPower has several technologies under development, including a unique advanced reactor design. So Chris, maybe to kick it off, can you give a bit of a background on yourself and the history of TerraPower? Sure. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Mark. Uh, my background is uh, I'm an engineer who's worked in nuclear energy my, my whole career, uh, about 35 years now. Uh, started off in the U.S. Nuclear Navy, where I relied a lot on nuclear fission. My shipmates and I relied on nuclear fission to keep us safe, really. And it helped us propel the ship, make water, desalinate water, make electricity, um, and, and control our environment. So I've always associated uh, nuclear energy with something that uh, had great benefits and, and, and kept me safe. Uh, after I left the Navy, I worked for a couple big nuclear companies uh, on older technology. And about seven and a half years ago, I had the chance to come join Bill Gates at TerraPower. TerraPower um, had been around seven years at that time. We're, we're about 14 years old now. And, and TerraPower is a nuclear innovation company that was founded on the principle that, you know, when you look at the challenges we're facing with climate, with energy, and, and even uh, some health challenges, nuclear technology has, has really been under leveraged to solve some of these problems. So uh, we have a, a nuclear energy and a uh, medical isotope product. I'll, I'll, I'll focus more on nuclear energy to begin with. Um, we've developed a plant called Natrium. Uh, natrium is a reactor. It's, it's a fission reactor, like the 100 reactors in, in the U.S. today. We, we make heat by breaking uranium atoms in half. And, you know, fission's pretty well understood in, in the U.S. But the advanced part about it is um, instead of cooling the reactor with water, like most of the plants around the world today, we cool the reactor with a liquid metal, uh, and that's um, sodium. And there's advantages to using sodium. It's, it's really good conductor of heat. Um, it also has a very high boiling point. And because it has a high boiling point, it means our plant operates at very low pressure, about atmospheric pressure. So uh, that helps us lower costs and has safety benefits. Um, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna mix a couple things here. There's, there's sodium and there's salt. So uh, we have both of those in, in the plant. We're cooling the reactor with, with liquid sodium, so it's a molten metal. And, and then about four years ago, we had a big breakthrough where we realized that um, lots of plants uh, and lots of customers were being challenged by all the wind and solar we're adding to the grid, which is, which is a really good thing. We're adding all this um, emission-free generation, but that creates a challenge too because wind and solar are intermittent. Uh, they, they could come and go during the day. So what we did was we implemented uh, molten salt storage. So um, when we make our, our heat with our reactor, before going off and boiling water and making electricity right away like today's reactors do, first we heat a very large tank of molten salt. 
and this acts like a thermal battery, uh, and it lets us be able to change the output of the plant very quickly if we need to, uh, let's say if the wind or, or the sun is, isn't there. And, and that's turning out to be something that's much sought after by utilities as they look at the challenges they're, they're facing in the, in the 2030s. We also, uh, as I mentioned, have a, uh, a medical isotope we're developing called actinium-225. It's not nuclear energy, but, it, but it's, it's really applying uh, nuclear science, which, which is a field that's really been underutilized uh, to solve the world's problems. We're producing actinium-25, and, and there's multiple drug companies who want to use actinium as what we call a payload. So with existing cancer drugs, they want to use uh, these drugs and pair them with our actinium. Uh, and then their drugs go find the cancer in the body. And, and our actinium uh, gives off a small amount of radiation right at the, uh, at the tumor or the disease cell. And, and what that does is it kills the cancer, but not a lot of tissue around it. Really excited about both of these technologies and you know, look, looking forward to talking more about them today. So you mentioned Natrium, you mentioned the, the reactor technology there. You've got two other reactor technologies, I, I, is my understanding. Maybe there's more that haven't, haven't been made public, but just can you explain the, the variety of reactor technologies that you have and you know, why is the one uh, so sure. going with, uh, with Natrium? Today, we have two technologies uh, we're working on in, in nuclear energy, and, and that's natrium, which I was discussing already, and then a second technology, which is earlier in its development, called the molten chloride batch reactor. You may have heard, uh, and we have, a, have some information on our website about the traveling wave reactor. That's a technology uh, that's really kind of the, the predecessor to natrium. So TerraPower, in its 14-year history, um, has been working on a sodium-cooled reactor the, the whole time. And then uh, roughly four years ago, when we had the big innovation with energy storage, we renamed the traveling wave reactor or the TWR, we renamed it Natrium. And that is our, our technology that is um, ready for commercialization. Um, we won a very large uh, government grant under the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program which is helping us with um, some of the first-of-a-kind costs of, of natrium, uh, like the, the, the cost to license the reactor with the NRC, um, the cost to design the reactor for the first time, because you, know, you design it once, and you know, most of that design effort doesn't need to be repeated as you work on subsequent units. There's also going to need to be supply chain investments to you know, enable the first First natrium construction. We're very fortunate and you know, really pleased to be working with the U.S. Department of Energy on that. It's a, it's a public-private partnership that had bipartisan support in, in Congress. You know, both parties now want to see the U.S. You know, move forward with, with clean energy. Um, also, it's important to the U.S. government that you know, the U.S. keeps its, its technology leadership in, in nuclear. So those are some of the reasons for you know, this really significant government program. MCFR, the molten chloride fast reactor, is another uh, design we're, we're super excited about. It's a, it's a little bit earlier in its development. We're working with Southern Company and, and also with the Department of Energy on, on MCFR. But the next step on MCFR isn't a commercial reactor. The next step is something we call the molten chloride reactor experiment. It, it's actually going to be an experiment that we do at Idaho National Labs where we, for the first uh, time, uh, 
in a long time, the U.S. is going to demonstrate running a, a fission reactor with a liquid fuel, and that liquid fuel is um, a chloride-based molten salt. So that's a little earlier in its development, but you know we think the two technologies together are really going to um, change the face of nuclear energy this this century. And I should mention natrium is, is really moving along in its demonstration project. We have great support in, in Wyoming, where we're building the first natrium reactor. That's going to be built in Kimmer, Wyoming, at the site of a retiring coal plant. You know, this is really a great pairing in, in so many ways. In Wyoming, they have several um, retiring coal plants. This, this was planned before Terra Power get, got involved. You know, there's uh, something like 300 gigawatts of, of coal retiring, in, you know, in the U.S. and Europe. And these coal plant communities really provide a great uh, location for siting a new nuclear plant because they have the, the cooling water, which you need for your, uh, you know, your turbine island. Uh, they also have a, an existing grid connection, and, and uh, you know we don't have an unlimited amount of uh, transmission and distribution in the U.S. So these these grid connections are, you know, really critical. Uh, and then something else, which is really neat, and we're we're proud of, we're going to be able to repurpose the the staff at this coal plant in in Camera, Wyoming. And you know, Wyoming is facing some economic challenges with the energy transition. They they have. Um, you know, they've been a coal producing state and, and they're seeing a reduction there, although, although they hope carbon capture continues to provide opportunities for them. But Governor Gordon, who's, who's been super supportive of, of the project, um, has committed to net zero. And when we first talked to him, uh, Pacific Corp and I approached the governor to talk about citing this first natrium reactor in Wyoming, he was pretty pretty quickly on board because his vision for the state is for you know Wyoming to become you know very involved with clean energy technologies. You know the Natrium project has has really been moving along. Uh, we, we selected the site in, in Camera, Wyoming. We have about 800 engineers working on the design today. So uh, the, the construction hasn't started yet, but you know these projects are you know they're EPC projects, engineering, procurement, and construction. So we're in that we're in that E phase of, of the project now. Again, a, a lot of attention on this project, you know, not just because the, the technology is, is um, so sought after, but also it, it's just a really great example of energy transition and, and you know, taking a community that might have missed out on an economic transition like the move to clean energy and and instead, we're, we're making, you know, the folks in Wyoming uh, part of this. And, it, and it's not just the jobs at the power plant, uh, which is about 200, but there'll be 2,000 jobs during construction. And then uh, the University of Wyoming and, and the community colleges are, are making a, a serious commitment to getting themselves involved in, in, in nuclear energy and nuclear energy technologies. That's fantastic. You mentioned all the retiring coal plants and the opportunity there. How, so your reactor is, I think, 345 megawatts electric could go up to 500 megawatts. And I want to talk about that in a second in terms of load following, but how does that size compare to all the coal retiring coal that's out there? And is there an opportunity if you wanted to double the size of it, you just put two plant, you know, two reactors in the same location. How does all that work? Yeah. Great question. Th thanks, Mark. Yeah. It turns out that, uh, you know, most of 
the reactors in the U.S. today are, are closer to a thousand megawatts or, or a gigawatt. We really need those plants to uh, stay in, online and, and even have their, their lives extended because that's good emission-free power. But if you look at you know, the, the limited connections on the grid, it turns out that these coal plants, many of them which are you know, roughly 300 megawatts, some, some smaller, it, it really creates an opportunity for plants of, of this size to be cited, again, for the grid connection, but also for uh, the, the, the cooling water. In fact, DOE just today released a report, um, you know, quantifying this, you know, this great opportunity and, and uh, all these sites which should be, become available for nuclear. And earlier you alluded to, you know, our ability to change power. Yes, so our kind of nameplate electricity um, capacity is 345 megawatts. So, you know, a good way to think about that is it's enough electricity for 400,000 homes, but we can rather quickly change our power output and go from 345 megawatts to 500. Uh, and, and we would do that due to changes that might happen in the day. It could be an increase in demand during the day. You know, if we're in a region where at, at 5 p.m. everybody, you know, cranks their air conditioning, that, that could be a reason uh, you need to increase the power of natrium. Or, you know, there's periods during the day when the solar intensity might be less and, and that utility um, needs to make up for the loss of solar output and, and, and turn to natrium. So the use case is kind of different at different places in the country. You know, in the mountain region where the first natrium reactor will be, will be paired with lots of wind. Um, in the southeast, will be paired with lots of solar. Different use cases depending on where you are. But uh, what we're hearing from utilities is, is, gosh, when can you make this, you know, when can you get the Wyoming project done uh, so that we can, we can show this technology is demonstrated and then you know, how quickly can you ramp up and, and produce multiple units per year? You know, all our indications are is this kind of technology is, is going to be massively needed on, on grids around the world, you know, 2030s and, and beyond. Again, driven by all the fossil retirements, a growth in wind and solar. But, you know, our models say wind and solar, you know, will peak out around, you know, 60 to 70 percent. And, you know, as, as you grow wind and solar, you, you add needs for energy storage, things like batteries. And, you know, our models show that the, the best way to complete the carbon-free grid is with 20 to 30% nuclear. And, you know, natrium is just kind of an ideal solution because it, it's not just a generator. It also has built-in storage. So it, it's, you know, in one plant, it, it's generation plus storage. Does, does that storage over a 24 hour or whatever the period is, do you need to discharge that storage? Because I assume the reactor is continuing to run and generate heat and you need, the heat needs to go somewhere. Like how, how, how does that dynamic work? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for exploring that more with me. Um, yeah. The storage system, which is a large tank of molten salt. Um, it, it's, it's partly potassium uh, nitrate, partium nitrate. So these are nitrate salts that have been used for storing heat for decades in, in different processes. So uh, there's nothing nuclear about the salt. It's, uh, it's a commodity that, that's been used in industry for, uh, for a long time. And it was proven out in the solar industry. So uh, the concentrated solar industry is already using these large solar tanks because you know, they have transients during the day. If, if clouds go by, uh, you know, for example, they need to continue running their turbines. So 
Um, if a cloud goes by at one of these plants, they'll, they'll continue to make steam and make electricity by drawing heat and energy out of that, that molten salt battery. Same thing for us. So again, there's different uh, use cases around the country. Um, and, but for many different situations, you know, anything from you know, California to the Southeast, you know, what we're seeing is um, we, with natrium, we can uh, really optimize what they call the duck curve, okay? There's uh, a change in electricity demand that happens in every region throughout the day. And it, you know, could be due to coffee pots in the morning, air conditioning coming on at 5 p.m., could be due to loss of solar intensity at, you know, at the same time everybody's coming home. And, and that's what utilities today need to manage. And Natrium's just ideal for doing that. And the way it would work is the reactor runs at 100% fission output all the time. And then at different times during the day, we're either charging heat into that thermal battery or we're removing heat out of that thermal battery. You know, the use case we talk about most is this uh, one where we can increase our output to 500 megawatts for five hours. Um, but that would also kind of correspond to maybe in the middle of the night, there's a period where the electrical output is below 345 megawatts and we're using the reactor to kind of charge up the battery, um, you know, to, to get it ready for the, the higher demands during the day. I'm sure there's some proprietary element of the reactor and salt and molten salt storage combination, but can this concept be applied to other reactor designs? I mean, I think anybody that's got a, a high heat reactor could look to employ this. As you said, it's a, you know, used in the, the concentrated solar industry. There's a lot of great advanced reactor designs out there and we're going to need uh, multiple solutions. I mean, the climate change challenge is, is so great. And what you'll see is, you know, multiple nuclear plant designers are now, um, you know, committing to be able to load follow and, and, you know, change power to make up for some of the, you know, hourly changes that I told you about. But the thing that really makes natrium ideal is we don't need to change reactor power. Uh, some of the other designs, they'll actually change reactor power during the day to accommodate those changes in demand or changes with wind or solar output. They have to do that because they don't have the built-in storage system. And, and if you change reactor power to load follow, as we call it, what that means is sometimes you're going to run your reactor at less than 100% power. And what it means is at the end of two years of your, what they call your fuel cycle, you're going to discharge good fuel. Some of the great things about natrium are because we operate at 500 centigrade, that is the ideal temperature for these proven molten salt storage systems. Really, if, if you're going to use one of the proven nitrate-based salts, it has to be a certain kind of reactor. Today's water-cooled reactors operate at 300 centigrade or so. And at those temperatures, our nitrate salt would be frozen. It, it wouldn't be molten. It would be, you know, like cake um, type salt. And then at some higher temperatures, you know, the, the nitrate salt wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really be uh, stable. So it, it turns out that a sodium fast reactor like natrium is, is, is really ideal to work with uh, molten salt storage. And, you know, and, and when we had the, you've asked about, you know, proprietary stuff. When we had this breakthrough several years ago, you know, we, 
we filed different different patents around the world. And it, it is a pretty unique thing to TerraPower. Fantastic. Maybe getting on to the sort of the the construction of of the project and the and the timelines and and so forth. So you're working with GE Hitachi and, and Bechtel. Can you talk about the nature of that relationship? And you know, for those companies' involvement, I mean, they've got a lot of reference in in the nuclear sector. But is there any element of the design that they're bringing that that might be proprietary that you know makes it really important to have those two? TerraPower is you know the the owner of the, the Natrium design, and it's something we developed with. GE Hitachi and, and Bechtel's on our team as well. It, it kind of comes to, um, you know, our model as a, as a company is we're a nuclear innovation company. We're, you know, really a, a technology leader in, in, in nuclear. And, uh, you know, to design the first natrium reactor requires a, a pretty large engineering effort. As I mentioned, uh, you know, we're going to get to over 800 engineers and, it turns out there's great resources in, in companies like Giatachi and, and Bechtel um, who can help us with that kind of large engineering effort, which will come and go. You know, as you, after you do the first design, you, you know, you won't need that volume of uh, engineers working on the project. So it really made sense for us to, you know, to partner with, with these companies that, as you said, have, have really strong records. Are you going to be outsourcing all of the, the manufacturing or is there going to be, are you going to have any roof line for making stuff? Even, even today, if you look at the nuclear industry, the supply chain is, you know, it's something that needs an investment, but it, you know, largely the nuclear companies are going out to the global supply chain, you know, all, all over the world to manufacture components and procure piping. So, you know, we'll, we'll do the same on, on natrium for the first plant, especially uh, with the large government grant that, procurement will happen as a government contracting process because because we have such you know 50% government money involved on the first project we'll be doing the you know the vendor selection and everything to government uh, contracting rules and you know as as it should be that was a big uh, US government investment and and the reason the US government wants us to you know follow that process is part of the benefits of of this advanced reactor demonstration program are that we reinvigorate the, the U.S. supply chain. So that's, you know, that's part of the reason for the program. And, you know, we're, we're glad to be a part of that. But then I think what you'll see is, you know, as we go into the 2030s, we're going to increase our delivery rate of these natrium reactors. So I, I really see us having a U.S. team that's delivering, you know, multiple units per year with, with U.S. engineering teams and, and U.S. vendors. Then, you know, working closely with the U.S. government, which, which we do for all, you know, nuclear energy exports, you know, we really see expanding capacity and, and developing similar networks in, you know, in Europe and Asia. You know, our vision is that there's going to be many natrium plants and later MCFR plants that are, that are going to be needed this century. You know, the, the U.S. government really wants to see U.S. nuclear energy technology exported. You know, it's a sensitive technology, so it, it needs to be done, um, you know, in, in cooperation and under control of the Department of Energy. But, the, but there's also a recognition that, uh, you know, many new countries who don't even have nuclear energy today are going to turn to nuclear. I mean, in Africa, countries like Ghana, in Indonesia, uh, you're going to see countries who, you know, to move their economies forward and to manage emissions, they're, they're going to need nuclear energy. And, you know, companies like ours and the U.S. government want to offer 
a U.S. technology. And the way the U.S. government sees it is, you know, if we're not there with um, a U.S.-based technology, China or Russia will will be there with with theirs. So, uh, you know, there's a there's a big you know public-private partnership aspect to this, and we're we're really glad to be working with with the the DOE on this. Maybe you could talk about the timeline for the advanced reactor demonstration. When are you supposed to be in commercial operation, and uh, what are the the major milestones on the timeline between now and then? Sure, it, it's a super aggressive schedule. If you look at the track record of new designs in, in the U.S. and Europe, it, it's it's not very good, and that's one of the reasons nuclear energy is doesn't have as big of a place as it, as it should today. Well. When the U.S. government and especially like the you know the drafters of ARDP and, and Department of Energy and in, in the, um, you know on the congressional committees worked on creating this program, they said we have to put a stop to that. And they, they said we're going to make this these first builds you know for the ARDP demo winners that's TerraPower and Next Energy. We're going to make these national projects. Okay, so we're going to assist with some of the first of a kind costs. And we're going to give them a very aggressive schedule, seven years for the, the E, P, and C, the engineering, procurement, and construction. And, and Congress said, we're going to ask the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who oversees you know, these licensing processes, to support that seven-year schedule. And so we're a bit over a year into that schedule, and, and, and so far, so good. We, we met all of our, our milestones in the first year. We're pursuing a two-step approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So we're going to be asking for two licenses from the NRC. One is a construction license. So that large package is kind of coming together right now. We're kind of incrementally putting it together. We're doing NRC uh, meetings, even some public meetings as it comes together. And that final package will go to the NRC in 2024 with the expectation that we get approval to start nuclear construction in, in 2025, and then plan to have this, this um, nat- first natrium reactor online, uh, making commercial electricity in 2028. It's, it's a really tight schedule. And as I mentioned, for the nuclear part of the plant, we need that NRC license. But for the non-nuclear parts of the plant, things like that energy storage island, uh, we're pretty confident that we'll, we'll obtain NRC agreement that we don't need to wait for the construction license. And that construction can start earlier, more like 2024. We will have af- activities going on at site as early as next year, 2023, because we have something called a sodium test and fill facility that is going to be required for some of the testing of the first pumps and uh, fuel handling equipment. And we're, we're kind of anxious to get started um, at the Kemmerer site in, in Wyoming there because, you know, it'll just kind of establish our presence there, deepen our relationship with, with the community, help us prepare for, you know, an even smoother construction process when the, when the nuclear construction starts. Are, are there elements of the project that are not at a high technology readiness level that, that need to come up the curve between now and, and delivery? Like, are there any things that you'd point out that there's, there's technological milestones that, that need to be achieved? We're certainly going to have first of a kind challenges with, with the supply chain and simply doing things for the first time. But to answer your specific question about technology risk, we feel technology risk is quite low. And in fact, the way 
um, the advanced reactor demonstration program was designed is, uh, you know, DOE said, hey, for the, for the companies who we choose for the demo award, which is what uh, TerraPower and Next Energy won, our, our big criteria for that are going to be technology readiness, strength of the team, and we, we talked about the strength of our team, and then our business plan. And included in the business plan is you know, our capacity to bring private investment to the, to the project as well. So you know, I think even by our selection for the ARDP demo, that technology readiness you know, was, was validated. And you know, I mentioned earlier, we have the other project, the, the Molten Chloride Fast Reactor, that was placed by DOE in what they call the risk reduction category. There's, there's five or so um, U.S. projects in that risk reduction category that are, have been awarded smaller projects to help them, uh, you know, uh, retire some of that technology risk you were asking about. And, and then, you know, the idea would be, well, their next uh, step is, is a demo project. I think you've said that, or we know this project's going to be a four billion dollar project, and that the goal is to get it to a, a billion dollars a copy. That's a massive reduction. Can, can you talk to you know what gives you confidence in that? What are the major categories that you're going to be able to see the cost reduction in? The, you know the first ones always do cost more because there's there's learning curve, and you know the U.S. unfortunately uh, hasn't built a lot of reactors. You know we created civil nuclear energy, but we haven't built a lot of new reactors um, in, in the last 20 or 30 years. So some of those first time costs are going to be the learning curve, supply chain investments. We're, we're going to be building uh, a fuel factory to make the, the natrium fuel and the design costs, you know, the 800 engineers who are working today who, you know, when, when we go to the second and the third plant, we won't need that massive design effort. The, the design effort will be more about you know, just tailoring the existing design to different sites. That's one of the things that will, you know, help make the second, the third, the fourth projects uh, cheaper. But also there's just things we know about the, the reactor and its, its makeup that are gonna make this plant cheaper. Uh, earlier on, I mentioned that natrium is a low pressure plant uh, and, and that's enabled by our coolant being sodium. Uh, our reactor operates at 500 centigrade and sodium doesn't boil till 900 centigrade. So, you know, that has great safety benefits too, to be so far from the boiling temperature of your, of your coolant. But if you compare that to water, uh, you know, today's reactors boil far above, or they operate far above the, um, you know, the boiling temperature of water, which is 100 centigrade. They're, they're very safe, but to make them safe and to make the plant work, uh, they operate at high pressure. And high pressure means heavy components, heavy piping, and even heavy civil structures. I mean, we all are familiar with uh, the really large reinforced, you know, containment buildings for, for today's reactors. So, you know, natrium having a low pressure plant will, you know, reduce, uh, you know, the steel and, and concrete requirements of the plant. And then also because what I was talking about earlier with energy storage, we're going to be able to decouple the whole turbine and electricity uh, production part of the plant, even the molten salt storage plant will be considered outside of the NRC cognizance, right? So we pursued a design strategy that says, hey, the things that are required for safety, which are really important, 
you know, those things definitely need to be under cognizance of the NRC, you know, and oftentimes because of that with the material controls, the oversight, you know, those parts of the plant can cost like eight to 10 times more than they would have if it was a non-nuclear power plant. We worked on an architecture, which, you know, on let's say a 40 acre site, we tried to demonstrate all our safety functions on about one acre, you know, and that was at the reactor building. And, you know, we, we have a, a cooling system, an emergency cooling system that has basically air chimneys that, you know, don't require any fans. It's always on. And, and so we kind of compressed our safety case on, you know, a small footprint of the site. And that's going to help with cost too, because it, it's going to help, you know, it's put the nuclear focus, you know, where it belongs. And then the rest of the plant, the turbine island and the energy island can be built to the same commercial standards, you know, and apply a lot of the lessons, you know, from, you know, that equipment that's being used at solar plants today. Fantastic. And I guess people like to talk about levelized costs um, when they look at electricity and they look at power projects. And I, I realize that's, that's an imperfect metric, but what would uh, maybe help us get an understanding of going from $4 billion to $1 billion? Like, what is that? look like in a cost per megawatt hour to a sure sure uh you know if we're talking in in you know i'll agree you know levelized cost of electricity is uh maybe not the best metric going forward but uh you know we definitely see natrium providing electricity in, in the 50 to 60 um dollar range which turns out to be quite cheap especially if you look at some of the prices of electricity in, in europe today in the hundreds of dollars you know hundreds of euros uh, a megawatt hour, you know, we think natrium will be very competitive. It will also be able to provide electricity to premium markets as well, uh, because, you know, electricity pricing is, is the highest when, you know, demand is high or when wind or, or solar are curtailed for some reason. So, you know, natrium is really being seen, you know, by utilities as, as something that can really, really help them manage that. Um, situation that is really new to them. You know, the, the last 30 years in electricity have been kind of static in, in the U.S. and Europe, right? We've had maybe 2 or 3% demand growth per year. Uh, our economies have shifted from manufacturing to services. We've had lots of efficiencies like, you know, LED lighting. The next 30 years are going to be much more dynamic, though, you know, with those huge fossil retirements and uh, moving to electric vehicles, you know, a whole new source of, of demand. You know, fr frankly, um, that's, that's going to be very challenging for, for utilities. It's going to be much more dynamic than the last 30 years. And, and it, again, that's why people are really uh, watching this, this first natrium reactor, the, the demo in Wyoming, really closely because they're, they're telling us they're, they're going to need multiple plants going into the 2030s. Maybe we could switch over and, and talk about fuel for a second. So one of the defining characteristics of the advanced reactor category, as I think about it, is the use of HALU fuel. So a higher enriched um, uranium starting point, 5 to 20% enrichment. Um, we've talked about HALU on, on some of these other episodes here that you know we don't have any capacity in the U.S., but the Inflation Reduction Act has $700 million in there to help stand up HALU capacity. Maybe you could just talk about what your fuel looks like. We had X Energy on, they talked about the pebble that they have. Um, so talk to us about your fuel and then how do you see the risk of, you know, this chicken and egg of, of HALU production versus your need for it and 
you know, obviously we've got $700 million of help for that now, but there's still always a risk that, um, you know, that doesn't come on stream on time. Thanks for that question, Mark. So, you know, some of the really neat things about natrium go all the way back to the, to the fuel. Um, and, and a lot of the fuel um, attributes have been proven out in uh, U.S. government programs in, in the past. Uh, plants like uh, the Experimental Breeder re Reactor in Idaho gives us a lot of foundational information on what's, what's possible with, with fuel. A sodium fast reactor like them has a fuel assembly that looks a little bit like today's water-cooled reactors. It's, it's many fuel tubes with uranium inside. Some differences, though, are uh, instead of it being a square cross-section like today's reactors, um, it's hexagonal, and that just makes sense for the physics. But then one other key difference is instead of it being a ceramic pellet like today's fuel, we use a uranium rod, an extruded uranium rod. And that gives us some really great heat transfer capabilities, uh, again, uh, leading to improved safety. So we have a, a metal fuel and, and a metal coolant. So the, the heat conduction is amazing. The reactor's ability to cool itself is amazing. And, you know, really excited about that. But it's true that Many of these generation four reactor designs utilize what you just mentioned, high assay, low enriched fuel. Uh, today's reactors are enriched up to 5% um, enrichment. There's plans to go up to something like 10% with today's reactors. They, they call that LEU plus. But generation four reactors need to go up to as high as like, you know, 19, just less than 20%. And, you know, earlier I was talking about the global move with advanced technology. Uh, China and Russia both are developing these reactors, have established fuel supply chains that, that go up to these uh, percentages. And uh, unfortunately, the US was somewhat behind in this. And it was in the Energy Act of 2020, Congress said, hey, we need to create this, this capability. So as we start the first plant in Natrium, the, the plan was hey, we knew the U.S. government was going to move forward with, with helping industry create the capability. You know, wh why does the government have to get involved? It's because we're competing with state-owned companies in, in China and Russia. We, we really need the public-private partnership to, to make this work. But the plan was for the first core loader to, for Natrium, we were going to be in a position of having to procure that from Russia. Several days after the invasion in, in February, TerraPower uh, decided we, we weren't going to procure fuel from, from Russia. And what we're doing now is we're working with the Department of Energy on, on uh, one of a couple possible solutions you know, that will probably involve downblending. Uh, instead of enriching material up to 19%, you know, we understand there's stocks of material owned by the government that are at higher percentages that can be downblended to supply our first reactor core or two. And then that will help, help us you know, keep the first reactor on schedule. And then we're really you know, happy to see things like the Inflation Reduction Act that are helping you know, through public-private partnership and you know, government investment are helping the U.S. create a capability that'll then be there for, for a long term. And you know, we see those programs like the DOE is leading, we see that helping multiple enrichers come up to speed because you know, we plan to sell many reactors and, and we want to, you know, aside from seeing the reactor business expand, we also need to see uh, 
the fuel supply chain expands because we, we want to see good, you know, good competition within the, the uh, nuclear fuel supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. Help us understand your expectations for the business. And I, you know, I don't want to get into asking you about a forecast or anything, but just so we can maybe set the expectations. Do you have a lot of commercial discussions going on right now for, for projects like Natrium, or do we really need to see the demonstration project happen, that thing's in commercial operation, and then all the business comes in? So I guess the question is more like, could you be having multiple projects in the ground in the early 2030s, or is it more like a late 2030s and beyond timeline? Uh, no, great question. We, we need to start additional Natrium projects before the first Wyoming project is done. And, and we're talking to uh, multiple utilities about this again, because they need this kind of power, you know, even in the earlier 2030s. Frankly, they have a problem in some regions that only natrium can solve because of so the combination of being emission-free with not intermittent, you know, 24 seven with built-in storage. You know, what's going to enable those additional project starts is us having successive, you know, accomplishments on this Natrium project. There, there's, you know, multiple milestones, like, boy, the day we get the construction license from the NRC in, in 2025, you know, that'll be a huge validation of, of the design uh, of the energy storage approach. And then it would be our goal to get multiple uh, plants going. And, you know, we are a business. We, we are so fortunate to have shareholders, you know, beginning with Bill Gates, who, who think in the long haul, you know, we're, we're patient investors, but, you know, we, we are a business and, you know, we expect to get a financial return on, on the investments we've made in Natrium. So a great test of our business case really was the capital raise that we just completed. To my knowledge, it's the largest ever capital raise, you know, for a new nuclear fission technology. Um, you know, it's going to amount to over 750 million, you know, led by Bill Gates and a Korean company, SK, who is, you know, you know, multinational and really interested in nuclear energy, but also in decarbonizing their their operations. They have significant operations around the world and, and things like semiconductors and uh, refining. And, you know, they see natrium as a great investment, but also as a way to decarbonize their operations. So I think that, you know, that recent fundraise is you know, just a great indicator of our strong business case. We're really um, growing TerraPower right now. We're going to stay on the high-end technology. You know, we're not going to grow to like a thousand engineers and add a lot of like commodity engineering. We're going we're gonna to keep a team who's focused on the, the high-end technology, you know, but we'll also lead the, the deployment of these, of these plants. We, you know, we have the product ownership. And we'll be, you know, leading the sales of natrium reactors. Uh, um, our project director is in charge of the, you know, the that 800-person team I, I told you about. You know, there's there's no plans for any any handoffs. We're we're really been growing and and uh, establishing the right partnerships to, uh, you know, to move move the technology forward. We're coming to the the end of the time here, just to kind of wrap it up. You mentioned the 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 construction license as a big catalyst or, or big milestone in 2025. What what should people look to more near term, maybe over the next 12 to 24 months, to evaluate how you're doing on this whole business plan that you have? You know, there's going to be a lot of oversight on our, our prod progress on this mega project. You know, DOE will be following it 
closely because there's a large government investment there. So will our, our first customer, Pacific Corp. You know, before construction license, you know, other, other milestones are going to be our different engineering design reviews. We'll announce in a few months the, you know, where we're going to build the first fuel factory, you know, fuel fabrication facility. We will lock down this, this plan for HALU. We're working on that with, in earnest with the Department of Energy right now. So I think there'll be, you know, ample milestones along the way that we can, you know, hold up to people to show them the, show them the progress. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Chris Levesque, CEO of Terra Power, really appreciate you joining us and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.